You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to Now Hear This. I'm your host, Chris Spangle. Now Hear This is a conversation with leaders in Indianapolis that are working to improve the lives of Hoosiers. Our goal is to empower you to join in their work and make a difference while informing you about the unseen aspects of life in Indiana. If you miss an episode, you can listen via podcast at nowhearthisindy.com. Today, we are speaking to John Elliott, who is the president and CEO of Gleaners Food Bank of Indiana, and their website is gleaners.org. John, thank you so much for joining me, and can you please explain to those who may not have heard of Gleaners, which may be few and far between, what exactly is Gleaners Food Bank of Indiana? We are first and foremost a member of Feeding America, a national network with 21 Indiana counties, including Central East and Southeast Indiana. So when you consider it's Indy Metro, it's about a third of the population and a third of the food insecure Hoosiers. But we also actually have three other roles that people may be less familiar with. We're a contract reclamation site for surplus food and non-food for Kroger stores in Indiana and Illinois. We also have a regional disaster response role for the national network. Uh, which typically is supporting a, another food bank that uh, is impacted by a hurricane or some such thing. But these days, we're defining disaster differently, I think. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth role, we operate one of six newly created regional produce co-ops that bring in surplus food from farms across the U.S. and Mexico and then redistribute those in mixed loads out to customer food banks in nine states. So we have a growing regional role we're adding dairy and protein to that. So a, a wholesaler to fellow food banks in addition to the retail support of, of hungry Indiana households. Um, and, and frankly, that mix has, has positioned us pretty well to deal with the pandemic or as well as you can. Uh, we're certainly in a better situation than we would have been without the mixed roles and the access to the perishable food, the healthier food, but also the strategic plan that we put in place in February of last year and the changes that we started making to position ourselves to do three times the distribution volume all of a sudden was very, very helpful when we found ourselves doing two to four times the distribution volume in response to the pandemic. So in an an unexpected way, we proved we can do a lot of the goals that were in that strategy to be achieved by the end of fiscal 23. Yes, yeah, so we talked to uh, several food bank, uh, not food banks, but uh, you, you know, smaller distribution points who who get food from you or from others who do something similar. But I don't know that a lot of listeners fully understand how the food bank system or or covering food insecurity necessarily works. They may have some experience at maybe their church where you know there will be a line of cars who are, who are picking up the food. They may see that on the news. But can you explain how the food uh, gets to that point where a volunteer is handing it to somebody in their car? Where does the food come from? What is this? What is Gleaners in that in that chain? And how does all of that work? It is a very complex, and some, including myself, would say overly complex model. <laughs> Uh, but you can you can bring a little clarity to that if you think about the role definition and if you think about the type of food and the, the uh, how the distribution takes place. So first of all, a food bank, think of as a wholesale distribution center for the most part. 
So we are sitting in a large warehouse for a reason because distribution is the core of a lot that we do. But then you have local neighborhood food pantries, which you should think of as your neighborhood retail store where the clients or customers come in and are served the food in normal times or not pandemic times. But there are other ways that people need access to food. There are places where there are no food pantries. So gleaners and others will set up a mobile pantry predetermined, pre-scheduled with local partners and, and set up in a parking lot and distribute food that way. And a surprising amount and variety of food through mobile pantries. We're doing a lot of those in Marion County these days. There also are pantries that we've deliberately set up in schools, so school-based pantries, and they have a little bit of variation from the, the brick and mortar traditional pantry in your neighborhood church or, or community center. The fourth channel pre-pandemic was back sacks of food that are packed with shelf-stable food kids can feed themselves with and no prep required to feed them over the weekend. The school-based pantries and the back sack channels stopped when schools closed. So we lost two of four distribution channels right away. More telling is the role of government feeding programs, all four of which are run through the U.S. Department of Agriculture budget. So all the school feeding programs those uh, pre-pandemic, because all data is somewhat suspect these days, but pre-pandemic, about 19% of all meals to the hungry in Indiana were school feeding programs. 10% mm. was the entire nonprofit sector combined. So schools were double what we did and they stopped. That's why there was such a spike in need the day those doors closed. Uh, the oh, other so, three programs so are So let, let me pause there. So that 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 particular distribution point closes and so that every food pantry we've talked to said that their need basically doubled overnight is that a matter of people shifting to those other distribution channels ex extended need um that's an interesting point that i hadn't heard anywhere else so yeah it's pretty straightforward when the stool when the school stopped serving the kids breakfast and lunch or out of school time activities that come with food, those meals had to be replaced by whatever adult is supervising those kids. I mean, maybe grandma or great grandma too. Um, and so the family had to replace those meals. That was the first wave and a very dramatic visible increase in the first and second weeks of the pandemic, we saw that impact. The second large wave or increase in the food lines was when employers started sending employees home or closing and there were either eliminate there was either elimination of household income or a significant reduction in household income and their ability to buy food so waves 1 and 2 and we had held pretty steady at about double the normal number of clients across this state and in the cleaner service area all the way through um, the end of July. But then in August, we started seeing an increase in numbers again. Hmm. So that plateau came up as there was uncertainty about schools reopening or not, people who hung on, you know, people were losing household resources and needed help. If they'd been under reduced household income for several months, you could tell when people were starting to run out of any savings or other options they had. Or so, maybe the unemployment. The $600 supplemental, we believe that had some temporary effect in keeping people out of the food lines. But then as that 
as that changed, that is part, but not all of the reason we're seeing more people join the food lines again. Mm. Okay. Yeah. It's all, it's all very complex. And, and I apologize for stopping there. You were, you were talking about other distribution channels and I want to make sure we get the full picture because I think, you know, people get their news off of social media, which is all bias driven. And when you, when you talk to an organization like yours, that's really on the ground through many of these situations, as we've got two crises that we're facing as, as a, a city, a state, a country, a world really, um, you, you really start to see the impact, the need that is out there. Um, give us an idea of just some of, the, some of the things that you've seen other than just the increased need and, and some of the stories that Gleaners hears from some of their food pantries. Well, so first of all, let me really quickly tell you the other three programs. Yes, because, please. So SNAP, which was previously known as Food Stamps, is about two-thirds of the meals for the hungry in this state. It's a huge factor and something that the charitable sector could never hope to replace. So what happens in Washington with SNAP funding is critical to success or failure of the system. Can can you explain like, why private – can you explain why – can you explain that statement? Why would private charity not be able to make that up? Because even at the capacity that Gleaners was operating at before – the pandemic, we were providing 10% of the meals in our service area. And SNAP was providing 67%. Right. And, and so those benefits, people take that benefit, that basically money directly to the to the grocery stores. To the retailers. Right. Okay. Yes. But we could not we could not grow to eight times our our volume. Mm. It's, it's been amazingly stressful for the system and the people involved to maintain double. Right. Eight times is not conceivable. But in addition, you have the WIC program, which is a more targeted program and not as large as SNAP, but still contributes. And the school program we talked about. And then there's another program called TFAP, or the Emergency Food Assistance Program, which is when USDA buys in bulk. And then the Feeding America Food Bank Network is the distribution arm. So they distribute, they allocate to us, and that food goes out into our channel. So it's, a, it's typically less than 10% of the food we distribute, but still a critical 10% because the USDA and the Indian State Department of Health, that's the local administrator, really focuses on a healthy, nutritious mix. Mm. So it's positive to hunger and it's positive to health. And so TFAP is the fourth. You combine all of those, that's 83% of the meals for the food insecure. And we couldn't aspire to, to, to replace those. Um, you ask about things that are changed or different as well. The entire workforce model has changed. Pre-pandemic, over 20,000 volunteers a year came to Gleaners to do 40% of our work. When the medical safety requirements uh, required us to no longer have volunteers come into our facility, we lost 40% of the work capacity, but we needed double the work done. Mm. In addition, 
for some, you know, again, pandemic results, less than 100% of our employees could continue to work in the building. So we've been up less than 100% staffing, lost volunteers did 40% of the work, doubled the work, and every single task and role got more complex. So how do you get all that done? <laughs> yeah, how do you get all that done? Well, we literally called out the guard. Uh, the governor um, and uh, support from the governor's task force and frankly disproportionate help and advocacy from Family and Social Services Administration. Dr. Sullivan and Rachel Lane really advocated for us and the National Guard is at the 20 largest hunger relief organizations in the state and has been for months now. Uh, we're beginning to taper that and we'll wind down by the end of September but they have been the difference between reducing our food distribution and doubling it. Hmm. So critical role that the guard, the national guard has played. And that's frankly, what's true for gleaners in that sense is even more true for some of the smaller food banks that are more dependent on volunteer uh, workforce. One thing we also did um, thanks to greater than usual donations from, from donors, is to um, hire some of the temporary workers who were at hospitality locations in downtown Indy and lost their paychecks um, because of the pandemic and brought them onto the Gleaners payroll. Hmm. And so it's been roughly 45 temporary workers since March who have been here at Gleaners working and getting work done that volunteers would have done previously. And to some extent, some of the doubled, the doubled workload as well. And it's been a great fit because some of them might have ended up on the food lines themselves, but instead they still have a paycheck. Yeah. As a house. And they have taken advantage of our offer to take home some of the family meal boxes that we've been distributing for their own families as well. If they have, if they have a need. So, and you couldn't find a more compassionate group that can relate to the families that they are packing the food boxes for. So it's been a great fit. Uh, reliable staffing is the firm and, and very appropriately named firm. And um, we, we also couldn't have done it without them. We are talking to John Elliott, who is the president and CEO of Gleaners Food Bank of Indiana. Gleaners.org is their website. My name is Chris Spangles, and you are listening to Now Hear This on all iHeart stations in Indianapolis and on podcast at nowhearthisindy.com. Um, you, you mentioned uh, previously the the workers that are from maybe the restaurant industry, and they can relate really well to those who are getting the, the food boxes. How important is that relationship, that touch point um, in this process, and what does distribution look like for for both ends, for gleaners overall? You know, in general, I'm sure it's different there. You know, I go to a church on the south side that has car lines, but, you know, they used to be able to go in and shop and now it's it's just completely different. I mean, ha have you been able to find your groove in terms of distribution and, and also what's the relationship between your gleaners, employees and the people that they're serving? Well, phenomenal relationship between clients and the gleaner staff, but we also rely on uh, pre-pandemic 600, more than 600 now, local partner organizations who also interact with those clients. So we get more interaction opportunity through 
the mobile pantries um, and we rely on the local agencies to have the interaction. But when I said earlier, everything has changed in terms of process. The back sack stopped, the school pantry stopped, the brick and mortar pantries had to switch to, to drive through as has our own on-site pantry, which has been seeing between four and five times the pre-pandemic volume over the last several months. So disproportionate increase in our on-site food pantry activity. Pre-packed boxes, which unfortunately has taken away the option of clients to walk in and choose what they want within what's available. And we hope to get back to that as soon as we can do so safely. The, the other thing is we had to design two entirely new programs quickly and flexibly. Um, we built a home delivery model with help from Toronto and Genesis, two corporate partners, who literally in less than 48 hours designed a call-in, text-in um, system for someone who was homebound, whether it's because of the virus or otherwise, they cannot get to the food options. They can have a family meal box delivered. And then Indy Hunger Network staff became the call center for us. And we pretty quickly ramped up to about a thousand um, or so of those um, each week. And it's it's increased some as well. And they're meant to be one-on-one -on -one, you know, um, deliveries to those who fit the criteria and, and can't access it. We also quickly realized some of them for medical or other reasons couldn't prepare their own meals. Mm. So we brought in second helpings as an additional partner for prepared meals, if that's what they need as well. So, and we'll continue to refine that. That's also a program that we've decided we will continue to do after the pandemic subsides. We've seen value in that, and we even see some value to evolve that to more of a to part of, not the entire, but part of a food desert solution mm. more than a household at a time. So a lot of discussion going on with our partners uh, but amazing to me that our operations team and Carano and Genesis um, could build that in less than 48 hours and have food delivered. The other key player, uh, because we are not in that single household home delivery business as leaners, uh, Tom Hanley and his team at 913 Sports, when the schools closed, lost access for their programs, their youth programs, and offered their help. Um, I, I hope uh, Tom doesn't regret that we said, absolutely, here's what you can do. And, and they, without hesitation, became the delivery arm. They don't. We interviewed him recently. And, and oh. he, yeah, he is, he is loving the opportunity. So allow me to share that with you. Yeah, he came on and talked about their switch. And, um, and we've all switched to entirely new things uh, in that case, but also modified activity. The other thing is we, because our preference has been and still is that clients have the dignity and opportunity of choosing what they want or mm. what they don't want, you know, and they can have more of a retail shopping experience and be treated with courtesy like a customer. And we'll get back to that. But in the meantime, we needed a new way to do it through mobile distribution with social distancing and no contact and so on. And so we went to pre-packed boxes and um, load those into car trunks and a roll through and we got pretty efficient. We've done some mega mobiles at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and State Fairgrounds, but even some like the John Marshall uh, High School location every Saturday, um, you know, on a weekly basis, we've grown to 1800 or more households per Saturday 
just at that one location. And of course we've got activity going on across 21 counties, not just at John Marshall. So the volume of need is disproportionate in some neighborhoods. And that family meal box didn't happen at a peak. We were doing 30,000 a week mm. from zero. Wow. <laughs> we ramped up past 10,000 in the first week. And if you convert that, so that is uh, running about, they've been running between 15 and 21 and a half dollars per box. None of it budgeted. The home delivery program was not in the budget. It didn't exist as a program. So uh, we've gotten surprisingly comfortable with doing things that didn't exist before with funding that didn't exist before either. Yeah, that's amazing. The the uh, and all of the stories that I started doing this program about a month or two before COVID hit and talking to about six charities or nonprofit organizations a week and what I've found is just the amazing adapt adaptability of of people. You know, like you said, 913 Sports or your organization and uh or the Red Cross, everybody seems to be uh, taking on the challenge well and and shifting funding and and it you know it is um, really really impacting people as as you can hear so uh, let's talk about how I, I, oh I'm curious about what is what comes in the boxes what kind of food do people get so they have varied over time but it's um, it's tended to be a mix of perishable and non-perishable or it may literally be a box that's shelf stable and a box that's perishable. The perishable side's uh, heavy on produce, but uh, we've had some great boxes of protein, um, gallons of milk in the mix, um, some good quality shelf-stable. It, it really has varied. And the federal coronavirus food assistance program brought some additional pre-boxed food into the system. And there are some local vendors like McFarling Foods who won federal USDA contracts to be part of that as well. So it's nice to see them and Prairie Farms Dairy and some others benefit from those federal contracts to feed the hungry. Uh, your comment about other organizations, though, re reminded me of something I would share if you don't mind. Please. Because I hear different stories from other states from my counterparts. There's something uniquely Hoosier about the way we roll up our sleeves and everybody comes together and we collaborate in an unselfish way and in a a client or neighbor in need focused solution. So in ways that you might think some charities in a similar area, or there might be a little bit of competition for donor funds or for, you know, notoriety, whatever it might be. There's none of that. We have come together in such a helpful way. And for those of us who are leaders of organizations or have staffs that know each other, that's been an emotional help too. This is exhausting work mentally and physically. And to know that your fellow nonprofit leader or your fellow operations manager at another charity has your back. And the way we've come together, I mean, Gleaners has become a food purchasing arm for dozens of organizations, not just us. And we're helping out. You know, John Whitaker at Midwest Food Bank helped find an offsite location that several charities shared. Um, it's there's a lot that's going on, and in an interesting way, you're seeing leadership from the donor sector do that, and you're seeing that 
that collaboration on the uh, state and local agency level too. The, the funding consortium led by United Way, but it includes Nina Mason Pulliam and Lilly Endowment and, and a list of others that pooled their resources and really, they've, they've asked us the right questions, they've gone about it the right way, they've really made sure those resources were deployed in the most effective way they could, and they did it as a team. Yeah, and, we... Teams have talked. Yeah, we talked in uh, the Arts Council interview about the Lilly Endowment and its importance, but there's something special about Indianapolis where the political class, the nonprofit class, the education class, the people who are engaged in all these major sectors of Indianapolis and Indiana seem to put the good of a person who's in a food line above party politics or their own personal politics or ambition. And there's something different about this state that that I've found as I've done these interviews or worked on other projects, um, where that that's it's truly a credit to the city. And I think Lilly Endowment probably pays plays a big role in that, you know, in in being so influential in so many different areas and and just setting the tone of leadership. So, you know, I think it's an important thing to highlight for Hoosiers to really understand about their city that this it's different here <laughs> than it is oh, in some other they, places. It's not just the resources they disproportionately bring to bear. They set an expectation of teamwork and collaboration and partnership, um, which is in the best interests of the clients being served. So it's that tone and expectation they set that is just as impactful as the dollars, but it's not limited to foundations. Um, just as one example among those family meal boxes that I talked about that was 30,000 at its peak, for a while, a third of those were going to IPS households. Mm. And we built a unique model. Scott Martin, who oversees administration for IPS and is a cleaners board member, key player. We worked with the food services team and the transportation team. We matched them up with gleaners programs and operations staff. They got their maps out. They got sat down, they designed 25 custom routes where gleaners found the food, found the money to pay for the food, and National Guard troops loaded the buses in our building. IPS buses left here and they ran routes twice a week and gave IPS families who were on the free and reduced lunch program a box of food to feed that family for a week. And we repeated that process week after week, a program that did not exist but we had to pay for it. So Jeff Simmons, CEO of Alanco, reached out to us and wanted to help. And we have a Gleaners board member there on his direct reports team who was also sort of an intermediary. Um, so Jeff and Dave Urbanic, he just started calling his fellow CEOs and said, join us, which is more credible, right? They put up $400,000 of Alanco money, the first check issued by the new Alanco Foundation. And Jeff put his personal cloud on the line and called those CEOs and didn't take no for answer. <laughs> and he raised a million and a half dollars to feed those IPS families for two months. We have heard his name more than once on the program as well. Uh, Jeff Simmons and Alonco. Um, so great to highlight them. Um, and I can name 10 companies, similar thing. The point I was trying to make is yeah. it's not just the charitable foundations like Lilly Endowment. No. And each one contributes in a somewhat unique way and it's up to us as the social service or charity organizations to define that need in a way that we can match that we can come together um, but i think 
we're not the only city that has generous corporate players, but I still think there's a unique way that it's done um, here in Indiana. Uh, let me ask you about your fundraising event. It's a program on September 10th, and it is the 40th anniversary celebration of Gleaners on Wish TV. What will be going on? Tell us a little bit about it. So in 30 minutes of airtime, so I have a newfound um, appreciation for the editing and production crews at TV stations <laughs> because uh, we are going to recap the highlights of 40 years of history for Gleaners. Uh, we're going to touch a bit on the pandemic's impact today in current times and preview a bit how our pretty ambitious strategic plan will take us to 2023 and beyond. And we're having a little fun. My two predecessors, um, Pam Altmeyer and Cindy Hubert and I had a great time just chatting while the cameras rolled and, uh, our friends at CVR had to had to sort of edit that down into a <laughs> defined space, sort of relating to your problem now with me on the radio, I suppose. But, uh, <laughs> but we've woven in some firsthand stories from employees, from food insecure neighbors that we have fed. There's a good mix of, of um, storytelling and updates and, and predictions for the future. So. If, if you want in 30 minutes to sit in the comfort of your home and turn on your television and, and hear 40 years of history and an optimistic and encouraging pivot to the future, I recommend that program. Uh, will it be available digitally? Like if people miss it, can they watch it on your YouTube channel or will it be uh, just September 10th only on Wish TV? So it will be live streamed on Wish TV. Uh, on the web. So if you don't get the, you know, on-air broadcast of Wish, you can get it through their website. Um, Gleaners will be doing some broadcasting in whole and in part. Um, maybe some excerpts, you know, like we've talked about pulling out a great client story and sharing that just standalone through YouTube and our website and other means. So it will at least be in portions after the fact, and then a link uh, shared as soon as we can. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. We've been speaking to John Elliott, president and CEO of Gleaners Food Bank of Indiana. His Their website, excuse me, is gleaners.org. John, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for the opportunity. And I love what you're doing with this series of nonprofit stories. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Now Hear This. I am your host, Chris Spangle. If you missed any portion of our program, you can listen on our website, nowhearthisindy.com. If you'd like to have your organization featured on the show, please contact Gabby at 317-475-7407 or via the contact page on our website. Thank you for listening, and we will be back again next weekend with Now Hear This. Check out the Boss Hog Liberty podcast on the We Are Libertarians Network. Jeremiah Morrill, Dakota Davis, and a rotating cast of guest hosts join you every week from our beautiful Henry County, Indiana studio. We talk national, statewide, and local politics, sports, pop culture, and everything we find interesting. Guests from state senators, economists, authors, comedians, and your local fools. Catch us live on Facebook or in your iTunes feed.